Well, uh, it is Mother's Day and uh, preachers normally on uh, Mother's Day think about the kinds of things they could share. Uh, that would be helpful to mums and other people in, in church as well, but mostly to mums. And often at the project we do some kind of unique message on Mother's Day. And so here I am thinking about it, about a, uh, a unique message and uh, not, well, I was just struggling to land on any particular thing. Um, and then I was, at the same time, I was thinking, what a shame. Like, we've got one week back into John and then we'll flip out of it for a week. So I thought, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable about that. So I thought, let's just have a look at the passage we're up to in John. And surprise, surprise, the passage we're up to in John, I think, is probably the most extensive interaction between Jesus and his mother that you'll see in all the Gospels. So I thought, let's just do that. Let's do John chapter 2. So if you've uh, got your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open those up to John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to, um, to read the first 11 verses. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day from the last story, which was the early disciples kind of getting on board, if you were here last week, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, was, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. He must have been fun to have around, all right? Um, and probably related or connected somehow to the people who were having the wedding. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What we have in this passage is we have a difficult problem. It's a strange situation. Uh, if, you were to pick all, if you were to pick one miracle out of all the miracles Jesus did to, to kind of prove that he was the Messiah, would you pick him going to a wedding and giving the guests more booze? It's a weird one, right? Uh, here's the rundown. Jesus and his mother are at a wedding with his disciples, probably the ones that John has just talked about. Wedding celebrations back in the day could run for a week. Um, and at this point in time, the guests have had plenty to drink. Plenty to drink. And they ran out of wine. Now, this may have been because they were poor, but they ran out of wine. Now, it, let me just add an interesting little historical note. Back in the day... There's a chance, our commentators talk about back in the day, there's a chance that someone actually might have been legally responsible or liable for not providing a good wedding celebration. Sounds weird to us. Um, not only would running out of wine be very embarrassing in a shame culture, 
there's a sense, there's a suspicion that it would actually leave someone open to legal action. Uh, huge uh, for, those, for, for the bridegroom there. Now, let me ask you this question, um, just for you to reflect on for a moment. Um, do you think this is a difficult problem? How serious is this problem? Is this a big problem? Or a little problem? Or an in-between problem? What would you say? Well, some of you probably would just go, well, the bridegroom was disorganised. Sucks to be you, right? You just got to deal with it. You got to get organised, man. Like have enough wine for the celebration. You know these scenes can go for a whole week. Others of you might go, man, like seriously, these people seem to go home, right? We don't, they've been there for long enough, right? Just, just go home, people. You don't need to keep hanging around and drinking more booze. Still others of you would probably say something like this, that's nothing compared to my problems. Mine are way bigger than wine running out at a, welling, at a wedding celebration. Well, let me tell you something that you already know. The closer the problem, the bigger it is. It all comes down to perspective. The way you see something. I used to teach graphics, technical drawing in high schools. And there was this uh, type of drawing that, we, that I used to teach students called uh, perspective. What's perspective? Perspective is to actually draw something in a way that's lifelike. So you draw a cube which has all equal sized sides But when you draw it in perspective, all the sides are different depending on how far away they are from the observer. This is a perspective picture. The closer the items in the picture are, or in reality, the bigger they are. And I want to say to you this morning, and you you kind of go, yeah, duh. But we're just going to keep it simple today. When problems are closer, they're bigger. True? True? When they're really close to you, they're bigger. Some problems are bigger than others, but in general, problems when they're close are bigger than when they are a distance away. And when you have a big problem, close, it's big. It's big. And so I just want to revisit the, uh, the, the running out of wine at the wedding. Is this a big problem? Well, it's a good question. It's a close problem. The bridegroom is right in the middle of it. The point of the celebration is a risk. Shame is coming. Maybe some legal action. For them, it's big. And even to us, we can look at that and appreciate that that would be an awkward, difficult problem. But still, there's some of us who would just go, lighten up a little, people. The situation's not that bad. It's not as if someone's dying. It's just wine, right? You know, geez, look in the Psalms. There's there's worse stuff in the Psalms. I mean, go and gargle some concrete and harden up a bit. But here's, here's the reality. A problem is a problem no matter how big. A problem, now that, that might sound like Horton, here's a who to you. Dr. Zeus. A person is a person no matter how small. Well, a problem is a problem no matter how big. Let me ask you this question. When is a problem big enough to warrant compassion? 
When, when is a problem big enough to actually be a problem? And, and here's kind of the kicker. When is a problem big enough that Jesus would need to be involved? Now, now don't answer too quickly. Because you probably know the right answer in your head. But the answer in your heart sometimes can be different to the answer in your head. True? Sometimes we can know in our heads that no problem is too small for Jesus, but in our hearts go, well, he has better things to do than the thing that's right in front of me. I want to break out for a moment and just talk to the mums for a moment. Mums can have some big problems, can't they? But most of the problems that mums have are small and close, right? They're small and close. You know, you might even look at some of the problems that mums have and you just kind of go, well, there's not that much to it, really. <laughs> it's not that big. There's like bigger fish to fry. But I want to encourage you, if you're not a mum, you're not married to a mum, to, to just think about what it's like to be a mum. Mums work over the long term. And most of the work they do is incremental. It's like Lego brick after Lego brick. Um, it's massively significant. And here's the reality for mums. The problems that they encounter are close. They're always close. There's these crazy people in their house that they have to live with. Right? Um, they are working with these little imperfect people who need to grow up. And they don't always grow up in the way that mums want them to. Who knows what I'm talking about, mums? You know what I'm talking about. It's like, what on earth are you doing? I did not teach you to do that. Sometimes they're downright immature and ill-disciplined. You know, mums are just ace at seeing something small in a child and wondering what it's going to blow out to in the child's future. And they can get anxious about that sometimes. There's lots of small problems which are big because they're close. They are real and they are present. I want to revisit previous question. When is a problem big enough for Jesus to be involved? Is getting a car park when the kids are screaming big enough? Is your relationship with your spouse big enough? Is a broken down lawnmower big enough? I'm not talking to mums here, I'm talking to everyone. Is a sore knee or a bad back big enough? Is your relationship with your workmate big enough? Is running out of wine big enough? Is dot, dot, dot big enough? You fill in the blanks. To all those with problems, Jesus says... No job too small. Amen? No job too small. This is the, the classic handyman line, isn't it? The classic tradie line. No job too small. We'll come and do anything. Well, I want you to know there is no job too small for Jesus to be involved in. He is into everything. And you could just invite him into it because he's into it. He's into the stuff that's going on for you. 
You see what Mary did? Jesus' mum. She just went up to him and told him what the problem was. What'd she say? They've got no wine. Like you could do that, right? We could all just do that. We could just tell Jesus that there's a problem. Couldn't we? And I want to just break for, uh, for 30 seconds and, uh, and give you the opportunity to tell Jesus about a problem. You don't, you don't even have to ask him to fix it at this point. Like just, and just talk to him like you would a friend, right? There's something going on at home. There's something going on in your family. I don't know. You've got an ingrown toenail. He'll take anything. Just tell him that there's a problem. Can you do that like for 30 seconds? If, if you're not a Christian, just hang tight. And people might just close their eyes around you and, and uh, in their hearts just talk to Jesus. 30 seconds. Tell Jesus about a problem. Well, he heard you. He heard you. He was interested. Number two, a confident mother. Have a look at verses three to five of John chapter two there. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is an interesting interaction, isn't it? We need to slow down a little bit and uh, think about what's going on here. Uh, a bit. Um, now, some people have suggested that the reason why Mary's actually activated in this situation is she has something to do with the wedding and that she's feeling the responsibility to do something about it. Um, and uh, I want to just throw in a, a, a few ideas about why Mary actually went to Jesus uh, about this particular problem. And I want to move from the less clear to the more clear. Here's the less clear. Now, there's a bunch of people around the place, a bunch of scholars who actually suggest that Jesus has died, Jesus' dad died before too long. So one thing that you notice in the Gospels is that Joseph, um, he kind of, he's around at the birth narratives and you see him at the temple and then he kind of, no pun intended, but he, he dies out. Like you, you just don't hear much about Joseph anymore. And there's even some suggestion that Jesus' title he was the son of a carpenter, kind of changes to Jesus just being a carpenter, being described as a carpenter. There's even some scholars who would actually suggest the, the variations uh, between the genealogies in Luke and Matthew are actually connected to whether you go up Mary's line or Joseph's line, um, suggesting that Joseph uh, could have died while Jesus was young. Now, if this was true, if he did actually die, then Jesus became the man of the house. Oldest child, oldest son. And Mary would have actually learnt to lean on him. She would have known that he could actually do stuff. But here's the clear bit. And Mary knew more than that, didn't she? She was the one who was visited by an angel, uh, who told her how special her son would be. She was the one who gave birth to Jesus as a virgin. Um, as, a, as a mum, she would have had a front row seat to who Jesus was. And she would have seen that he was different to her other children. She, she knew that he was going to be the Messiah, the hero, 
And I think one of the things that Mary's doing here is she's leaning on him. She's going, now's the time to bust a few moves, right? Those Messiah moves. This is, this is your chance to be the hero. Now, what Jesus says in response is uh, probably for many mums here today is probably a little troubling, right? This is verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' reply is a little surprising, isn't it? I mean, it seems disrespectful. Some of the mums here are just going, great, this is just what I need on Mother's Day. I come to church and Pete gets up and he talks about this story about Jesus being a bit disrespectful to his mum. I'm going to go home. I'm going to ask my kid to clean their room and they're going to say, woman, my time has not yet come. (laughs) What's going on here? Well, you just need to know that that, uh, Jesus is not being disrespectful. He actually uses this same terminology uh, on the cross when he's dying on the cross in John 19 26 it was actually polite Uh, you you can see that it was polite by Mary's response she didn't react to it Uh, you know what's going on here is uh, Jesus is not under the hands of his parents anymore there's a shift in relationship that's actually going on here And whilst this is unique in the person of Jesus, uh, mums can understand this because there is a time where mums need to let their kids flap their wings and go off and and be their own person. You know, she'd she'd born him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers, skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. So what one commentator said, she'd apparently come to rely on him as the family provider. But there was a time where it wasn't, it wasn't that mothering thing going on anymore. It was like, no, you need to go and do... She had to learn that Jesus had to go and do the things that he'd been called to do. Now, what, what does Jesus say uh, to her in uh, John 2 verse 4? He says, his hour has not yet come. And I think one of the things that is going on here is that Mary's kind of going, come on, start busting your moves as Messiah. And Jesus is going, no, no, that's not the main thing that I do to be Messiah. The main thing that I do to be Messiah is to be crucified on the cross, to take the punishment for everyone's sin. That's the moment of Jesus' greatest Messiahship. And so he says, that hour hasn't come yet. It does. Later on in this gospel, uh, Jesus himself says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what do we have in this story? Well, um, we've got a confident mother who knew what Jesus was capable of, so she backs all of this discussion up with uh, John 2 verse 5, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Isn't that bold? Uh, She knows Jesus and she's confident he's going to be able to do something. You know what she believes right down deep in her heart of hearts and I want mums and everyone else this morning to hear this he's got this he's got this she doesn't know what's going to happen next right because we all sit there and we go oh well she gets the answer that she wants and it's like yeah but she didn't know how that was going to happen she didn't even know what what he was going to do she knew who Jesus was and she said to the servants, just do whatever he says. It could have been anything, couldn't it? She backs him to do something. 
And I want to say to you all this morning, you need to back Jesus to do something in your life too. Because he's got this. It doesn't matter what you're facing. You need to be thinking, Jesus has got this. He's got this. You might be going, I don't know how. It seems impossible. There's no way out. I can't do it. No one else can help. There is no way this is not going to be a disaster. It's terrible. This is so painful. I hate this. There's no escape pod and I have looked. The situation seems so strong. Other people have all the power. I can't do anything. But he's got this. Amen? He's always got this. So you don't give up. You don't give up. If you're right in the middle of a hard situation, you keep going because you're not on your own. He's got this. Now, part of the trouble for us, I think, is we just go, well, I don't know whether he's going to do what I want him to do. Is he going to do anything? Well, yes. (laughs) Yes, he will. Every single time. He, He will see to it that that nothing is wasted with his children. He will see to it that everything is good. You, you can be like Mary, just, just do whatever he says because he's got this. And you just need to know, folks, God is regularly going to take you to impossible situations where you're going to need to be able to say, one, two, three, he's got this. Didn't sound that persuaded, actually, in that. So he's kind of got it. He's he's got a piece of it. No, he's got it. He's got this. Mums, you need to say this over and over and over and over. Not necessarily out loud. Your kids will tell you to stop if you do, right? But during the day, he's got this. When everything looks like it's going down the S-bend, he's got this. Do what he asks you to do, partner with him because he's got this. Now, this highlights one thing. I'm just going to take a little sidetrack just for a couple of minutes and, and it's this. Trust is personal. Jesus, uh, sorry, Mary trusted Jesus to do something because she knew him. She knew who he was. It was her knowledge of him that fueled her trust and confidence in him. At the end of the day, trust is personal. You, You can find out all the information that you want to find out about someone, but when you actually enter into a relationship with them and you know their character and you know who they are, then you actually have the opportunity to trust them. When you know them and the way they operate better, you trust them more if their character is good. Now, this is one of the reasons why thanksgiving is an essential part of making requests to God. You know this verse in Philippians 4 verse 6, many of you know it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Do you hear that? Don't be anxious. Ask for what you need. Make sure you give thanks. Why would you make sure that you give thanks? 
because thanksgiving is the apologetic for present trust. An apologetic is a defense. That's what it is. You want a, a justification for why you should trust? Well, you need to make sure that you're giving thanks. What does giving thanks tell you? Well, giving thanks reminds you of all the goodness of God and the ways he's operated in the past, doesn't it? And then you put your trust in him. So there's a tip for you. That's a free one for today. When you're anxious and you're worried, one of the things that you should do is ask God for help. And the pigeon pair is give thanks. Give thanks. Because as you give thanks, you'll see how God's operated in the past and how he's helped you. And it'll fuel your trust in him. It'll help your trust to be personal. All right. Here's, the, uh, here's where we're going to finish today. Verse 6 to 11. Here's the story. Jesus tells him to fill the ceremonial jars with water. Would have had, they had plenty of those. There's about 600 litres in total. This is like going way beyond cask wine at this point in time, just saying. Uh, they fill them to the brim. They took some to the master of the feast and he tasted it. And it was the best wine. He says this, everyone serves the good wine first and when people are drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Now, if you know Jesus, this ought not surprise you at all. You just need to know that when you follow Jesus, his provision is not home brand. Is anyone with me? It's, it's not home brand. Now, it's fine if you shop at Aldi, right? But when it comes to Jesus' provision, he's not going to go to Aldi and get you something as close to as good as the name brand. Are you with me? It's going to be top shelf. It's going to be top shelf. Because some of us, can, can just, we can slip into that miserly way of thinking about Jesus' provision. And some of the reason for that is because he makes us wait sometimes. And when we have to wait, we just kind of look at something out there that, that we really want. We go, that is the good stuff. And we kind of get impatient and we get after it. Because we think that Jesus is going to show up with some kind of home brand corn kernels. And you mightn't have any problems. And if you don't have any problems at the moment, you're going to be a great help to people in the church. And I mean that. I mean that. Because the church always needs people that don't have big problems to help out those who are having some problems. Okay? That's how it works. A strong, uh, a strong help. Help the weak. Um, but I, I want to say this to you. If, you. if you've got problems in front of you, Jesus' provision for you is not going to be just enough to scrape through. It's just not. Um, if, if, you are, if you are in a hard time and you are just thinking survival, I just want you to know, I get that, I understand that, and Jesus does too, but he's not just thinking survival for you. Do you hear me? He just isn't. He thinks abundance. How much water got turned into wine? What's the answer? All of it. You know, it's not like they got down the jars and they got to the last one and it's going, hang, what happened here? Did someone order Mount Franklin 
like we're supposed to have like this is meant to be good stuff like it, you don't get to the end and it's all of a sudden it runs out God thinks abundance it doesn't matter what has happened to you or what you are going through you aren't just going to scrape through it might feel like it but God's provision for you is much better than that and I want to say to you God is no man and no woman's debtor You know, there's a sense in which God owns everything. He owns it all, and so God can't be in debt to any one of us, but also in the sense of offering things to him. Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. You know, sometimes we can get a a kind of smell-the-burning-martyr moment, you know, where we're going down with the ship, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm putting everything on the line. It's like, well, you just watch and see. Because God is a God of blessing and he's a God of fullness. He's a God of abundance and you can expect fullness, blessing and abundance at some point in time. How? I don't know. It's not my job to know how. (laughs) That's his job. You just need to know that he is a generous, gracious God who does well, does very well. What's the... um, the greatest blessing. Well, if you look at the last part of uh, that section out of John, uh, verse 11, this is the greatest blessing you could ever have. And it's not, the greatest blessing is not to get good wine. The wine was a sign that was pointing to something else. And that's what John wants us to know. And the sign that it points to is Jesus himself. A greater blessing is to see Jesus truly and put your trust in him. And that's John's objective. He says that at the end of his book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see what John says in John 2 verse 11, if you've still got your Bibles open? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John's intention is that you will read about this factual event and put your trust in Jesus. I wonder if the uh, worship team would like to come up. You're meant to have, or John's intention is that you would see what how Jesus responded to Mary in this situation at the wedding, put your trust in him, and then you would have your own evidence of uh, Jesus' work in your life.